Thanks, mate. All right, evening, everyone. Evening, that's good. That's as much enthusiasm. Uh, good. <coughs> it's good to be here. Uh, good to be preaching. And uh, straight away, I note that uh, Stuart's thrown me kind of in the deep end. Uh, these are the first miracles recorded in the book of Luke. Right? And I'm a scientist. I'm not supposed to believe in miracles, right? I mean, it's 2019. That's a great argument for a whole load of things. It's 2019. Um, if that was a good argument, it would work even better if you put the month in. It's February 2019, people. What are we doing? Um, on one hand, asking the question, can a scientist believe in miracles, is quite easy. I mean, you're literally looking at it happen right now. I'm literally right now believing in miracles, so that's that sorted. But hasn't science shown that these things can't happen? So uh, we better get into this question first, because it'll lead us nicely back to the passage. Um, the first thing you've got to say is, actually, this, this objection is backwards. The whole idea of a miracle claim, to say that a miracle happened, is to say that something has happened which was beyond the power of nature. For that to be true, there must be such a thing as the power of nature. There has to be such a thing. Right? And if science discovers what the power of nature is then it's discovering the very thing that the miracle depends on. Let me put it this way. If the very idea of a miracle implies that there must be such a thing as business as usual in the universe, the stuff that nature does, then the stuff that nature does, business as usual, can't be evidence against miracles. This is quite a, a general principle. If this implies that, then that can't be evidence against this. And if you uh, want some fun later on, I'll prove that from probability theory. I'll take that as a no. Um, but someone might say, a modern science has discovered that these things don't really happen. Well, ask yourself this. When did we discover that death tends to be a permanent situation? Did Professor Death name it after himself in 1846? No, we've always known that. I mean, science didn't discover that death is permanent. I mean, when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, he doesn't say, oh, I guess sometimes babies just happen. He knows how ha things happen in the normal course of nature. But the most that science can say is, if the virgin birth happened, it didn't happen by natural causes. But that is exactly the point. Another objection that's raised, and here is your bonus evening service material. Too long for the morning service. Enjoy. Um, what about all those other miracle claims, right? You Christians, you have your miracles, the Buddhists have theirs, the, the Mormons have theirs, the Muslims have theirs. Why think that yours are any better? Now, the thing to do with that question, why think that these miracles are any better than any other miracles, the thing to do with that question is to answer it. We can think through miracle claims. Science is not going to help us, if I've said. All it's going to do is show what nature usually does. But we can, in fact, rank miracles. We can take a look at all the miracle claims around and start to rank them in terms of which ones are most likely to be true and to see which ones come out on top. Here's my ten categories. We can ask how much distance is there between where the event was first reported and where it was supposed to happen. We can ask how much time elapsed between where the event was first reported and where it first happened. We can ask whether it happened in public or whether one person just saw it behind closed doors. We can ask whether they saw it with their ordinary five senses. We can ask whether there are any possible natural explanations for this miracle claim. 
We can ask whether the miracle claim supports existing people who are in power or whether, seven, it supports prevailing opinions, things already people already believe. We can ask whether there are any ordinary human motivations that might explain the miracle, like fame, political power, money, or sex. We can ask if this miracle is supposed to give someone a stamp of approval, is that person really the kind of person that God would give a stamp of approval for? And finally, we can ask if the miracle happens, so what? What does it mean? What would be the actual result in our lives? Let me demonstrate some of these uh, criteria. There is a, uh, stories about miracles about the same time of Jesus. There is a Greek man called uh, Apollonius of Tyana who lived about the same time as Jesus. Now, uh, we have reports of him doing miracles. Those reports are written by a Roman man called Philostratus. Right? Apollonius is in India. Philostratus is in Rome. So by category one... We've got a problem there. India is a long way from Rome. You're relying on sources going a long way. Secondly, Philostratus writes 120 years after Apollonius. The first reports of Muhammad doing miracles are from 230 years after Muhammad died. The first reports of Buddha's miracles are 500 years after he died. Thirdly, do they happen in public? The Mormon church believes that Joseph Smith is a prophet and that he was given by an angel golden plates. If you read carefully the accounts of Joseph Smith and his companions, the only person who ever saw those plates was Joseph Smith. Fourthly, actually someone else did claim to uh, see them, a follower of Joseph Smith called Martin Harris, but when he was asked more closely, he said that he had seen the plates with his spiritual eye. He didn't have a spiritual eye. He had two on the front of his head like everyone else. So that's a problem. Five, is there a natural explanation? So, for example, and this is a pet peeve of mine, it's going to become obvious. Someone in a wheelchair standing up is not a miracle. This is a classic trick of faith healers. Okay? Of all the people in wheelchairs, there are those who genuinely can't walk. But there's also a larger group, probably larger group, who just find walking difficult or painful or tiring. So if you get a typical wheelchair user and you psych them up and say, stand up, most of them can actually stand up. It's not actually a miracle. You're just making them hurt themselves by standing up. Okay? So in those cases, it looks impressive, but a little bit of thought's going to tell you, actually, no, that's not a miracle. That's just uh, a charlatan. Five, power. The Roman Vespasian. There are first-century... Stories of miracles about Vespasian. The thing you need to know about Vespasian is he was the emperor of Rome. Can you think of a reason why someone might want to tell lovely miracle stories about the emperor of Rome? Uh, A historian I was reading on this suggested this looks like the first century equivalent of a a staged photo opportunity by Vespasian's PR team. Prevailing opinion. Uh, One of the things about the miracles that come within uh, about Muhammad and about Buddha is they come within a context where they are already believed to be prophets, right? There is the prevailing opinion there that these are great prophets or great holy men, and then the miracle stories come. There's all the difference between a miracle creating a religion and a religion creating a miracle. Uh, Self-serving, Joseph Smith went from being an unknown farmer to having between 27 and 49 wives. 
I'll let you decide whether that's a step up. Nine, the stamp of approval. There are stories about an, uh, an Aztec man from central Mexico, and this, this name is a whole lot of fun. You'll enjoy it later on tonight. Enjoy saying Quetzalcoatl. That's just enjoy that. I'm going to say it a whole lot up here. So, is, there's a whole lot of stories about Quetzalcoatl doing miracles. Is he the kind of guy God put, might put his stamp of approval on? Well, let me tell you about how Quetzalcoatl died. Okay? This is the pageant that they put on at Easter in Quetzalcoatl churches. Okay? Um, some demons get Quetzalcoatl drunk. So drunk that... Uh, how do I put this delicately? Uh, let's just say his sister is involved and the next day he's so ashamed that he sets himself on fire and dies. That is the end of Quetzalcoatl. Now, we are unlikely to put that on as a skit here. Okay? Is that the guy that God is going to put his stamp of approval on? I'll let you fill in the sordid details yourself. Okay? Probably not. Meaning, uh, there's all sorts of tales of sea monsters, for example, but, I mean, if you believe them, all you would believe is that there are some sea monsters out there and that's about all there is. The reason to go through this is just to show how much the miracles of the gospel absolutely ace these ten, right? Uh, the miracles of Jesus are first reported in Jerusalem, where they happen, right? The resurrection of Jesus is reported exactly in the same city where it was supposed to happen. The distance is, for all intents and purposes, zero. We are dealing in this passage with miracles in Capernaum. That is one of the sites of early Christianity, one of the first places it's spread to. The time is within the, eye li- uh, uh, the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. The first bits of, uh, actually the oldest bits of the New Testament are the letters of Paul, and we've got those within 20 years of the events. That is the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. That's not 100, 200, 500 years. That's extraordinarily close. As we see in these passages, these are public. We have multiple uh, versions of these uh, events. They are witnessed by the ordinary senses, no special spiritual eyes involved. And uh, sometimes people get well, of course, but not massive crowds of people. And, uh, of course... Uh, no one particularly rises from the dead, is that's not the kind of thing that naturally happens. In terms of supporting power, no, Jesus gets in trouble with the established powers because of his miracles as, as these spread the word. The, in this case, the miracles create the religion rather than the other way around. In particular, prevailing opinion is a really interesting one with regards to the resurrection because... Uh, standard Jewish beliefs at the time, they did believe in resurrection, but it was a resurrection of everyone at the end of time, not of someone in the middle of history. In particular, the Greeks didn't have any, uh, didn't particularly uh, warrant uh, resurrection. It wasn't a good thing. You didn't want to come back after you died. This sort of meat sack was not the ideal situation. Uh, are the miracle claims of Jesus self-serving? Well, they got him killed, so I'll leave you to work that one out yourself. Is there a stamp of approval problem here? Well, Jesus is arguably the most influential moral teacher in human history. So this is probably the guy, if anyone deserves that stamp of approval from God. And finally, what do the miracles mean? After this long aside, we will actually get back to the passage. What do the miracles of Jesus actually mean? Why, in, in particular, if God's going to set up an orderly universe like this, why do miracles at all? Why go to the effort of setting up the laws of nature only to break them? 
why did Jesus do miracles? There's a fantastic comedy sketch by um, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean. Uh, he's not, it's not a Mr. Bean sketch, but he comes out, sorry, he comes out dressed as a bishop, just in the, all the regalia, and starts reading as if from the King James Version with all the these and thous, uh, uh, but partway through kind of goes off script. So he's telling the story about how Jesus turns the water into wine and then says, and all were amazed and said, this guy is really good. He should go professional. And the servants did press him saying, go on, give us another one. Right? Is Jesus just doing a magic show, but with real magic this time? Is he just trying to impress people with his power? Now, there's an answer in this passage, but it might not be the first answer you've thought of. To hear it, you're going to need to put on what I'm calling some Old Testament ears. You're going to have to sort of steep yourself in the Old Testament because there are some phrases in here that uh, would have triggered something in the ears of anyone who's sort of steeped deeply in the Old Testament. So firstly, let's backtrack a little bit. Stuart talked last week about uh, this passage, uh, slightly before the reading, where Jesus applies a prophecy in Isaiah to himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, this passage has one of those Bible words, right? Anointed. Just for fun, see how many times you use the word anointed this week from Monday to Saturday. Report back to me. Probably not, right? I think sometimes we think it means appointed or chosen, which is close, Um, What it literally means is to pour oil onto someone's head. So as the priests were preparing to serve in the temple, they would be anointed with oil, signifying that they were chosen for that special role. But if you're one of Jesus' listeners, if you've got your Old Testament ears on, you'll hear something in this passage. You'll hear an echo of something from the Old Testament, particularly because of that word there. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. It's the Lord who is anointed. Because when you're talking in the Old Testament about the, the Lord's anointed, the anointed of the Lord, a whole host of passages come to mind. For example, here's just a couple of them. When Israel's first king is chosen, he is anointed to be king, Saul. And so uh, Samuel says, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When God rejects Saul as king, David is anointed king by Samuel, but even after that, he will not, David will not do anything against Saul, because as he says in the second passage there, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing against my master, the Lord's anointed, or laid my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. There's two for the price of one. When Solomon becomes king, he says, O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Uh, Throughout the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, whenever you see that phrase, the Lord's anointed, in a Psalm of David, he is referring to himself in his capacity as king. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. If you've got your Old Testament ears on and you hear Jesus say that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me, that's going to trigger some stuff off. The Lord's anointed is the king. Now that one's slightly subtle. It's just a hint, just an echo of what you would hear if you've got those Old Testament ears on. 
The next one is much more straightforward. In Luke 4.41, he says, Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. Messiah. See if you use that word this week. Uh, I think if you ask 10 people on the street what it means, they would say that Messiah means saviour. That's not actually what the word means. Messiah, as hopefully you, you know, literally means the anointed one. It's the same one as before. The Messiah is the king, to the point where actually at this point in history it was common to refer to the promised Messiah as King Messiah. That was his title. That's who they were waiting for. They were waiting for the King Messiah to come. So again, if you put those Old Testament ears on, Messiah means king. There's another one. In this passage, at sunset the people brought to, uh, brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of illness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. Now we use that phrase a lot. What exactly does it mean? I mean, if we're all God's children, what's so special about Jesus? If we're all in God's family, then doesn't God have sons by the tons? And just to confuse us, for this question, what does son of God mean? There are a couple of almost but not quite answers, which are sort of in the ballpark but not quite there. Is Jesus the son of God because he was born of a virgin? Because he doesn't have an earthly father? Or is Jesus the Son of God because he is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity? Now those are correct, of course, but they're not what Jesus' listeners would have heard. If you've got your Old Testament ears on, they would have heard something more specific. We're going to need to look into the Old Testament here. And in the Old Testament, the phrase Son of God is used in a number of ways, in uh, consecutively more specific ways. So let me lay it out for you. The first way is that you are a child of God to be, is to be in the family business of God. So um, in Job 41, uh, it mentions an arrow, as in a bow and arrow, right? Uh, but the arrow is, what it literally calls it is, a son of the bow. It's a really interesting image. There's a time, if you've got kids, there's a time when you're sort of holding them and directing them as best you can, and then there's the time when you sort of let them go. And hope they don't kill anyone. Uh, if you, the picture there is that you, the son is someone who is directed by the father, just as a bow directs an arrow. So, I mean, this is a point in history where um, you generally followed your parents' occupation. If your parent did something, then you would do that thing. Right? Thank goodness that doesn't happen anymore. Remember my dad being a prisoner? Yeah, it's ironic. Um, if you were a child of a baker, you were a baker. So to be a child of God is to be in God's family business, to be directed by God, to be trained by God. So as a great example of this, actually, in the New Testament, just a page over in Luke 6, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good to them. Then you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God's family business is about being uh, kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so if you are God's child, that's your businesses too. That's your business. That's what he's training you in. 
There's a more specific uh, reference here as well. In Exodus, uh, Mer- uh, Moses tells Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. It's the same picture, but now specifically, it's Israel that God is going to raise up in the family business. They're the ones that he is going to train. Now, that's both a blessing and a curse, of course. You expect a higher standard from your children, or should. But there is something even more specific in mind here when a particular person is called the Son of God. If you want to sort of cheat your way through the Old Testament and just get to the important stuff, right? Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot going on in there. It's rather large, of course. There it is. Uh, the important bits to pay attention are when God makes a promise. Because that is going to sort of put its hand over the entire narrative. You will understand what's happening in all the stories if you understand the promise that God has put over the whole thing. So Abraham is promised a great nation, land, and to be a blessing to all nations. And Moses is promised that obedience will bring blessings. And the rest of the Old Testament is about how these promises play out. So here's a quick visual summary about how that works. Basically, it starts by off, off by going well, and then goes badly, it goes badly, and then they're in Babylon, in exile. That's the short story of the Old Testament. They sort of nearly get there, and then it all goes pear-shaped. It probably looks a bit more like this, but you get the idea. Okay? They enter the Promised Land under Joshua... They are gaining the land. The book of Judges is a bit of a mixed bag. But finally, uh, they have a king. Um, Saul is a little bit of a disaster. Uh, So God chooses David, who eventually, after facing all sorts of danger, mostly from Saul, uh, becomes king. And they have the land. And they are becoming a great nation. And they are defeating their enemies. And the Ark of the Covenant returns to Jerusalem. And it seems like everything is in order And if you want the Old Testament to have a happy ending, you stop reading in 2 Samuel 10 because everything after that's where everything goes down. But the peak, the top of the Old Testament, as good as it gets, right? The promises are the sort of cheat sheet. As close as they get to those promises to Abraham and Moses is when David is crowned king. And it's precisely at this point that God makes another promise. Not a promise to one man who is told Abraham that he will be a great nation, right? But at the very peak of the Old Testament, God makes a promise to his people. So in 2 Samuel 7, we read this. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. And he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That is the promise. Now, logically, if you're thinking about an eternal dynasty of kings, there's kind of two ways you could do it. You could just have a whole lot of kings one after another. Or at some point, 
down the line of kings, you eventually meet the one king who is an everlasting king. And that is exactly how this promise is interpreted by Isaiah. This is a famous passage. We usually only read it at Christmas, but listen to it again afresh. Isaiah 9, for unto us a son is, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. A son who will reign on David's throne forever. All of that is wrapped up in that title, Son of God. That is what it means. They are waiting for this one who will restore Israel back to the promises, truly to the promises, to actually get there, to have the Lord's blessing on them. So when the disciple Nathaniel first meets Jesus, he declares, Rabbi, You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Both of those together. By the way, this tells us why actually in this passage Jesus is trying to avoid some of these titles. There we go, I just said that. Let me just give you a little bit of background information on this. Here is a map of the region that we are sort of planted in. Here is Jerusalem in the south, Bethlehem slightly further to the south of that. We are in the region of Galilee up in the north. There's Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Um, This distance, Jerusalem to uh, Nazareth is roughly sort of Sydney to Newcastle. Last chapter we were in Nazareth in the synagogue. We are now in Capernaum in this chapter. Uh, But I want to draw your attention to this town, this city actually, which is not mentioned in the New Testament called Sephorus. It is mentioned, however, in Josephus, the historian. And what he tells us is this. Around about the time that Jesus was born, a man in Sephorus, it was actually the largest city in Galilee at the time, decided that he was sick of living under the Romans and so proclaimed that he was in charge. He was the new king and he was going to lead a rebellion. And the Romans did what they always do and put that rebellion down. But obviously not hard enough because 10 years later he had another go at it. By the way, his name was Judas. Nothing but trouble. Uh, In about 6 AD, he had another crack at setting himself up as a king against the Romans. And this time the Romans weren't taking any chances. They burnt Sephorus to the ground and took a lot of its inhabitants away as slaves. Okay? In terms of time and distance, that would be like, uh, basically, if when John Howard was elected prime minister... There'd been a rebellion around here, and so he'd sent the military in to burn Norellan to the ground. That's roughly the time and distance kind of involved. It, it is, uh, Nazareth to Sephorus is six kilometres. It's very close and very much in living memory. So this is not a time to stick the label king on yourself, especially if, like Jesus, your idea of what a king does is not quite what the Romans were worried about. And so... Uh, there are, I mean, there are a number of good reasons why Jesus sort of shuts down uh, uh, the devils here. Uh, telling the devil to shut up is probably a, ba- a good policy at the best of times. Uh, but this is specifically why Jesus is trying to avoid these titles. 
You'll notice that Luke is not. He is trying to put as many of them on Jesus as he can in this particular section. And in particular, there's this framework of the Son of God in the New Testament. Every now and then in the New Testament, Jesus just blows the top right off it and applies the word son to himself in a way that is totally above any of these senses. Um, John is fantastic for this, but there's a good one in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus says the following. No one knows who the son is except the father and no one knows who the father is except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Now that is an outrageous claim, even if you think you're the promised king. Let me put that in context. I've, if you're ever reading through John, have this following thought experiment in your mind because it would be fantastically entertaining. Um, imagine we had a visiting speaker walk up the front here and by way of introducing themselves, they said about themselves some of the things that Jesus said about himself. Okay? So he walks up the front and says, hi everyone, Um, a little bit about me, I I really want you to know God better today, God the Father, and of course, no one really knows God the Father, except me, and anyone I choose to tell him about. At that point, there's a rule here, it's unspoken, Uh, if you're in the first couple of rows, you've got to take them out, okay, if someone ever says that on stage, they've got to go, okay, kicking and screaming out whatever door is closest Right, that's clearly someone who's lost their mind. But Jesus says loads of these things about himself, right? Speaker walks on stage. Hi, everyone. I am the resurrection and the life. He's got to go, right? Jesus says loads of these things about himself. Read John 5 and 6 with this thought experiment in mind, and it's like a Monty Python sketch. It's fantastic, okay? There's one of them in this passage. Okay? Uh, verse 33. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away. What, have you, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. No human being in the Old Testament gets the title The Holy One. Right? Angels are sometimes called holy ones, plural, or a holy one. But the holy one, especially the holy one of Israel, is God, always. See, I mean, here's the thing. Who is the true king of Israel? When Israel asks Samuel the prophet for a king, and Saul is about to be, is chosen as king, God tells Samuel... It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. Who is the true king of Israel? God is the true king of Israel. It's always been God. I mean, yeah, he let you pour some oil on some people down there, fine. But it's always been God. Even after God blesses the kingship of David, in Isaiah 43, he says, I am the Lord, your holy one. Israel's creator, your king. And so when Jesus says later on that he must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent, that phrase kingdom of God is another big one that we need to get our head around. But actually it's quite straightforward. The kingdom 
of God is a kingdom whose king is God. The kingdom of God is a fantastic phrase. It, it, it asks you to imagine what will the world be like when God is king? When he is on the throne as he deserves to be. When every fallen, fallible ruler finally bends the knee. What will God's world be like when God is king? It's this language. While Jesus has to try to avoid this title because he's being smart, Luke is not. Every, there's all five of these titles, these phrases that Luke is putting on Jesus in this one passage as he performs his first miracles. The Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Holy One, the Kingdom of God. This is a king. The reason this is so important is because it gives us the full picture of why Jesus does miracles. There are three great uh, roles in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest and king. The prophet came with truth. They were God's mouth. They would tell uh, God's truth in particular at times when it was unpopular. You listen to a prophet. The priest is the go-between, the one who does what you cannot do for yourself, the one who goes into the Holy of Holies to offer that sacrifice. You trust in the work of a priest because you cannot do it yourself. And a king is your leader, the one that you follow. The key to understanding Jesus is that he is all three, and all three perfected, all three once and for all. He is the prophet who is the word, the priest who is the sacrifice, and the king who is the king of kings. And so we can use these categories to get a full picture of the miracles. Jesus does miracles as a prophet to endorse his truth. He says uh, in John chapter 10 that of, to his opponents, even if you don't believe me, believe the works. No one who didn't have the stamp of approval from God could do these things. And so I must be bringing God's truth. A priestly miracle does for you what you cannot do for yourself. It is a miracle of salvation. Uh, A wonderful example is the parting of the Red Sea, where God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. This is God's way of saying, uh, see all that water over that side and all the water over that side. You didn't move a teaspoon of that. I got you out of Egypt. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as our great high priest who presents the sacrifice once and for all. You trust that miracle. You stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. These miracles in Luke, however, Luke has gone to every effort to put all of the language of the king around them. They are about the kingdom of God. They are about showing what the king does for you to follow. What does the king do? He does not he does not seek fame. What did Jesus do when he walked this earth? He didn't seek an audience with the emperor. He didn't raise an army. He doesn't get rich. He didn't marry into power. He doesn't travel through the empire with his amazing loaves and fishes stage show. He doesn't spell his name out in the stars. He doesn't go and seek the approval of Rome. 
And he doesn't go and seek the approval of Athens. God himself walked among us. And what did he do? At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. He sat with the sick. See, what Jesus announced in the synagogue, he was going to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. When John the Baptist asked Jesus whether he is the one, Jesus says, report what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. This isn't his personal agenda. You follow a king. These are kingly miracles. If you see your king in the heart of battle, charging that way, sword drawn, then you charge that way. This is Jesus charging. This is your king. Not that you have Jesus' power, of course, you aren't God in the flesh, but your king has laid out and is now demonstrating the program for the kingdom of God. The miracles aren't magic tricks. They are marching orders. You follow them. Not by doing miracles, although if you can, good luck, but by following Jesus' heart. We need to keep all three of these roles in front of us without putting any higher or lower. Because a Jesus who is not a prophet is just another religious opinion of which we have plenty. A Jesus who is not a priest is a Jesus who comes and finds us in our fallenness and our brokenness and leaves us there with a couple of good ideas at best. The sort of social revolutionary Jesus who has some ideas and if you're on board with that then fill a great big bag with your own best intentions and see what happens. Um, I'd suggest that uh, fallen human nature and our best intentions are pretty much what got us into this mess in the first place. Jesus the priest is here to change you. But change you for what? A Jesus who is not a king is the founder of a social club where we get together once a week and we remind each other, I'm going to heaven, you're going to heaven, it'll all be okay in the end. All right, I'll see you next Sunday. The good news of the kingdom of heaven is that by being transformed by the Spirit, we can join our king in turning back suffering and evil. To actually be a force for good, to actually be a net positive, to bring our world in some way closer to its ultimate good in God. When Jesus announced the kingdom of God, He didn't just mean that when he gets back, he's going to fix everything, although he will. When Revelation 21 says he will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is the perfect vision of the kingdom of God, but it is not purely for the future. Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. It is for today. We are called to bring as much of it into today as we can. That is why you were saved. The early church understood this very well. In Acts, we see the church feeding the hungry by sharing all that they had. We see Paul talking to the disciples and both of them deciding 
that uh, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do, Galatians. James tells us to honour the poor, visit the sick, look after orphans and widows and to show mercy in all things. A few centuries after Jesus, in the 4th century, the Emperor Julian complains about these sodding Christians. It is the Christians' benevolence for strangers, kindness, and their care for the graves of the dead that have done the most to increase this atheism. He calls Christians atheists because they don't believe in the Roman gods. It is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, and all men see that our people lack aid from us. They were famous for embarrassing the Roman Empire at being better at feeding the poor than them. That is something to be famous for. That is that taste of the kingdom of God here. Let me wrap this up. I said at the start that miracles only make sense if there is such a thing as business as usual in the universe. And in our world, business as usual usually means suffering, evil and death. It will not always be so. The miracles of God show that there is a part of this world that is not permanent. The kingdom of God is breaking in. God's perfect future, every tear wiped away, is not just for the end of time. Jesus' miracles are not a temporary reprieve from suffering for a couple of lucky people who happened to be in Capernaum at the right time in the first century, after which nature returned to business as usual. That is not the point. We don't all just wait around. The miracles of Jesus are a taste of God's future here and now, and they are done by your king. You sit at the feet of your prophet, and you put your faith in the work of your great high priest, then follow your king. Set the prisoners free, be the eyes for the blind, feed the hungry, bring freedom to the oppressed, and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. We thank you for your son. We pray that in all things we will be uh, looking to serve, looking to take up the example of our king. Give us his heart for our world. Amen. Q&A. Didn't do this this morning. This should be fun. Uh, about the message or just about astronomy, just whatever you feel like. Or not. Not is absolutely fine. Ah, oh, dag it. Hit it. Which... Put your faith in the work of your great high priest and follow your king. That's basically that. I like tables. Sorry. I got told this morning that that sermon was a bit dense. I did nothing to change it. Black holes, expanding space. Nope, good. <laughs>